the good news to Felix. And if you remember, Felix and his wife were very inquisitive of what Paul was all about, you know, this message. They were very interested, intrigued. But the thing is, um, they were convicted. And sometimes when you're convicted of things, you know, your lifestyle, maybe where you are, your mental, spiritual state, you, 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 you get this like, ah, oh, something's not right. That's conviction. Ah, oh, something's not quite right. And I think that's definitely what happened with Felix, the governor, who was the one who received Paul into Caesarea. Um, but he did the wrong thing. And I think a lot of times the wrong thing does happen. Um, when we're convicted, we have a choice. And the thing is, I do believe as Christians, we, God's given us, you know, he's made us in his image. He's given us freedom to think and to choose and to decide things for ourselves. And... Um, and for, for uh, Felix, the governor, when he was convicted, when, he was, when things were revealed to him, he, instead of changing, which is the key principle of the gospel, is to change, repentance. It begins with repentance, change. So you have to be able to be convicted. So have an, an, an inclination that something's not quite right. That's what conviction is all about. And that's what happened with, with Felix. You know, Paul was sharing him the, the very many aspects of the gospel, and it brought conviction. But instead of dealing with it and with humility, he ran away and he hid from the problem. He did what we would say, he put his head in the ground, you know. He, uh, he ignored the problem. And, uh, and consequently, he left Paul in prison for two years. Uh, unrightfully as well. I mean, Paul was deserved a trial. But instead of dealing with the problems, dealing with the issues, he just ran from the issues. And then a new cover comes to town, uh, Festus. And with Festus, Paul's kind of sick and tired of sitting in a jail cell in Caesarea. So he figures if, if this Festus guy is going to do the same thing Felix does and just ignores me, then I'm just going to be wasting my life away here in jail in Caesarea. And I can't be having this. So he made an appeal to Caesar. And as a Roman citizen, he has the right to appeal to Caesar, which is a very risky move because Caesar could just as well decide to, you know, have you put to death, you know, if he didn't like, you know, your, your case. So he, but he, he's taking that risk. I, I need to get to Rome. He feels like God's really pulling him to Rome. And he, and so he made a decision. Maybe the best way, the only way I'm going to get to Rome is if I appeal to Caesar and be shipped off to Rome. Um, and that's what happened when he saw this new governor who scratches his head and wonders, who's this Paul fellow? Why is he sitting in jail? Um, and then King Agrippa, he comes up with his sister friend, um, and they are in Caesarea traveling about, interest, intrigued about this Paul fellow, because, you know, there's a, you know, he's a, this big ordeal, you know. Who is this Paul guy? What's he? Why? Why did the? Why did these these Jews, Jewish synagogue in, in Jerusalem want him dead? What's the deal with him? So, 
And then, so then Festus wants to get him involved. Listen, he's appealing to Caesar. I need to make a case to Caesar. So I, I have to send Paul with a letter of, you know, a case of conviction. And I have nothing on the guy. Can you help me come up with something? And so this is where King Agrippa comes into the picture. And he sits before Paul and, uh, and, and, and he wants to hear what's his case. So they can kind of figure out what is the charge. What are we going to say? as we send him with this letter, a charge to Caesar. And so the next slide. <clears throat> and of course, this is, you know, I've been calling this the road to Rome, this little section, because we can see Paul, you know, all the, you know, the, the situations lining up, you know, the scenarios lining up, so he's getting his way to Rome to, um, and, and we know in Rome, you know, he, he did actually preach in front of Caesar in you know, and he, but he was in prison. He was in house arrest in Rome, but that's where also he, you know, he preached the gospel in Rome, and he also wrote a lot of the um, um, New Testament letters and the epistles. So the road to Rome, Paul's defense for Agrippa. So in Acts twenty-six, starting in verse one, Agrippa says to Paul, after, of course, this is this is after um, um, Festus makes his statement. Now Agrippa's going over to Paul and saying, okay, okay, Paul, it's your turn. You have permission to speak. Go ahead, speak for yourself. Let's hear what you have to say. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today, and I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. So, again, he's playing off of the the, the fact that that you know, as a, as a king, and you know, he, in, 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 he wasn't the king of the region of um, Jerusalem, but nearby. So he was familiar with the, the 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 problems, the troubles in Jerusalem, the riots, the and there's always this great fear, you know, that that there's going to be um, riots and problems and uprising in Jerusalem. So he's very familiar with turbulent Jerusalem. And so he's kind of playing off that. You know about the, our customs, the customs of Jews. You know about them, and you know the situation, the controversies, and so on and so forth. So I beg you to listen to me patiently. Again, we already talked about this a little bit. You know, we got to handle the situation carefully, you know, because it's very political. You know, if Paul's not dealt with properly, even though he's innocent, you can't just let him go. But, but, but King Agrippa's going to say, well, he's done nothing. We want to let him go, but, but we can't because he's appealing to Caesar, which is kind of good for King Agrippa and for the governor, Festus, because then if they just let him go willy-nilly, then either A, they're going to, you know, they're going to be, um, the Jews are going to, from Jerusalem, are going to hunt him down and try to kill him again, or B, there's going to be a big riot, a big uprising. So this, it's a problem situation. So Paul is saying, listen to me very carefully. In verse 4, the Jewish people all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child. From the beginning of my life in my own country. This is from up, like in modern day Turkey, you know, in Tarsus, where Paul comes from. That's his own, that's where he was born. And also all the way down in Jerusalem, you know, the, the hub of Judaism. They have known me for a long time and can testify. If they are willing that I conformed to the strictest sect of our religion living as a Pharisee. So Paul was, and he grew up, and he was raised, and he was trained to be a Pharisee, which is a very strict sect of Judaism, very legalistic, very much so, you know, very serious, very conservative. And now, it is because of my hope 
in what God has promised our ancestors, the Montreal today. So in verse 6, he's kind of, he's kind of suggesting, or he's being very explicitly clear, rather, that what he was taught to believe and to be, he's actually being. Okay, as a Pharisee, they were very interested. They were very conservative. They were very, very much so. What does God say? And they took God's word very, very seriously. You know, they memorized it. They, they held each other very accountable to it. So they were very strict. But he's saying, but what we're reading in the Old Testament, what we're reading with Moses and the prophets, is happening. Right? So he's, in his own mind, the hope that comes from scriptures, the hope that comes from God's promises it was, was being actualized, was being realized with Jesus Christ. So he's like, not only am I a Pharisee, but I'm a really good Pharisee, because I actually, not only do I memorize the verses, and I you know, hold myself accountable to the verses, but I actually believe them to be true when they come true. You see? And it's, that's why he's on trial, because of his beliefs. And his beliefs are based upon the promises of God that are found in scriptures. Promises to Abraham, promises to Moses, so on and so forth. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. So these people who work very hard, are very hard on themselves, very strict, very serious, conservative people, they work very hard, eagerly serving God day and night, hoping to see these promises. They have a hope that God's going to fulfill these promises. I believe he's doing them. I've seen him do it. You know, and he's going to go on to explain how he has it, it, you know how he's very specifically has encountered God, encountered Christ. But he's starting here with this first step. This is why I'm on trial today, is because I actually believe what I'm reading. I've actually believed what God is doing. So, um, and also, um, I have here written down here that there's a, uh, I forgot, but the, 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 the wee asterisks. Well, the thing is, on, well, here he's saying it's because of his hope that he's in God and in the promises of the scriptures. But, but, but the funny thing is, if you remember from weeks ago, the actual original accusations and when they brought that, you know, that sophisticated lawyer came up and started talking about, oh, you know, to um, to um, the old governor, um, uh, uh, Felix. Felix. Thank you. He, the, the, the accusation at that point was three things: stirring up riots being a ringleader, and defying the temple. It seems to me like they totally got off of that original case against Paul. Because <laughs> the reality is, the bottom line, it has to do with who Jesus is and his beliefs in Jesus and the fulfillments of Jesus and scriptures and whatnot. So the next slide, in verse 8, it says, Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? And this is more closer to what the real problem is. It hasn't really anything to do with you know, him being a ringleader or a riot starter or defiler of the temple. The bottom line is, is because Paul believes that God can do incredible things. You see, when you get too conservative, you don't like changes. But when God decides to, to fulfill his promises, changes come, right? This whole, I mean, these promises that God gave to Abraham and Moses, well, they're radical changes. So when they come, expect to see some changes. And I think that's exactly what Paul is saying. God, we're seeing God do some amazing things. He's fulfilling his promises. And so changes are happening. And it's described as incredible. Incredible is a funny word. We use the word incredible as almost like a cinnamon to amazing or awesome or remarkable, right? But the word incredible is more or less defined in this context as being too good to be true. Too good to be true. So God's doing things that you consider to be too good 
to be true. And to that, I hope you guys are thinking the same thing I'm thinking. Why do we, why would anyone want to limit God? Especially if he's doing exactly what he set out to do and exactly what he promised, what he said he would do. If he says he's going to do remarkable things or incredible things, things are hard to believe. But consider the source. It's God we're dealing with here. God can do things that are for humans impossible. Things that are too good to be true. And so the word incredible, it actually comes from the word pistos. Pistos, which you guys will know, is faith. Faith. You have faith. The classic word in Greek for faith is pistos. But you, put, you know what happens like, you know, in Latin and Greek when you put the word a in front of uh, words? It means without. It takes it away. It's a contrast. And that's what we have here. Okay? Apistos. Without faith. So it's like it's a thing that we can't trust. You know, the things that we see God doing, we can't really trust. How do we trust the testimony of Paul? How do we trust the testimony of the apostles? How do we trust the testimony of Jesus and John the Baptist? They're just too good to be true. Especially God raising the dead, which again, you know, is a deep theological issue between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Sadducees being very liberal, saying that there is no such thing as life after death. So there can't be raising of dead people. While the Pharisees open to it, but they're just kind of wondering whether or not it's really happening with Jesus and whatnot. So next slide, please. So a change, a radical change in Paul's life. It's not just that he believes what he's reading as a good Pharisee, reading the, the scriptures, reading Moses, reading the prophets, reading you know, the history books, reading and learning and memorizing. It's not just that he's doing these acts, but Paul tends to, he was zealous. So he also, I think he, there's something inside of him that wants to believe what he's reading, that what he's reading is true, and that these promises are genuine. And certainly God revealed himself through Jesus to Paul. And this is a part of his story, part of his life experience. In verse 9, he says, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. So he, like many others at the time, saw Jesus as a threat. This name, this guy Jesus, is a threat. It's a cult. It's a wild sect. It needs to be exterminated. It's problematic to our comfortable, traditional conservative ways. He's a threat. These things, Jesus rising from the dead, that's incredible. Can you believe it? He was there. And I think for a lot of people in our lives, and I'm sure we were probably this way at one point, find that things like resurrections, too incredible, too good to be true. And so many people in our lives, I can guarantee you, are going to be feeling like things like resurrection. It's just too good to be true. There's just death, and that's all we have. And I think that's the world we're living in. And this is why we live in a very sad day and age of despair. It's because the the more people push away Christianity and the very basic principles of Christianity, the more despair is going to come to the front door. It's just a logical conclusion. It's It's just a consequence. If you say there is no God, then there is no life after death. There's no possibility of these kinds of things. They're very spiritual things. And you have to have a spiritual realm and a spiritual beings, including God. But if people in our lives are sad and they're depressed, there's a very good chance that going to a psychologist isn't going to help them. They may cope and come up with really good coping mechanisms. 
but they need to have the hope that Paul has and the hope that Christians should have and that, that there is genuine life after death. You know, there's nothing to fear. So, but here, he opposed Jesus. He opposed the, what he's all about and everything about it. He was on board with the Pharisees and Sadducees. In verse 10, and that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people into prison, and when they were put into and then they were put to death. I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from, and just a side note, remember the story of, of Stephen, the martyr, the first martyr. They call him the first martyr. Remember Stephen, how he was, he, he saw a vision of heaven and Christ and sitting by you know, the right hand of God and just how he had peace. And he says, you know, you know forgive these, of this, of their, these people of their sin. They don't know what they're doing. You know, uh, Paul was there. He was actually, you know, he had, it was a, a part of the authority. He was, he managed their coats basically, you know, which was this seal of approval that what was happening was right. And this is when they, they, they stoned Stephen and killed him the first. So he, he knows, he's very much so, what's on that side of, of, of persecution to the point of killing people. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another and had them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and the commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the roads, I saw a light from heaven. Now, of course, at this point, he's trying to get King Agrippa's attention. King Agrippa, I've already spoken to others in authority, and they just tend to ignore me. But you need to listen careful, Mr. King. Mr. King, listen carefully, King Agrippa. You know what I'm saying? He's trying to get his attention because here he's going to get right to the heart. I think he's sick of playing the politic games. He's sick of playing around. He wants to get to the bottom line. And you know what? Sometimes you have to cut through this ball talk and get right to what really matters. And Paul's going to do that. I have seen Christ. I've grown up reverencing God, learning the ways of the Old Testament. I've seen it come to completion. And I've had a, a, a personal encounter on this road to Damascus. So what I'm saying here, I'm a genuine, trustworthy witness. Listen, King Agrippa, listen. It's a matter of life and death. You need to make a decision for yourself. So King Agrippa, do I have your attention? Listen, I was on the road. I saw light from heaven brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? I mean, this whole thing is incredible. I mean, even today, what would, you, what would you do if you were like, I don't know, a bailiff in a court and you had the judge and then they brought somebody into the court and asked him about what happened. And they said, yeah, they're walking their way to Glasgow one day. And then, this, and then they saw a light from heaven and then it was brighter than the sun and then blazing around me, my companions, and we fell to the ground. And I heard a voice in, in Glaswegian saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? I mean, what would you think? This guy was drinking the Buckfast. What's wrong with him? He's crazy. And that's the thing. To a lot of people, Christianity is crazy. And the Christian testimony is crazy. But we have very good reason through history, through scholarship, to believe that what actually has happened with Paul and with the apostles can happen and did happen. And it happens still. People still encounter God. 
a person's encounter with God, especially the initial one, which we usually refer to as a testimony, you know, my testimony, you know, what I have seen and what I've heard and what has done, what God has done to my life. It's a miraculous thing. It's a wonderful thing. But to many people, you're a freak because of it. And so I'm sure that the people hanging about with King Agrippa, the audience, if you will, from their perspective, this is truly an incredible or hard pill to swallow. Okay, Paul, whatever. You've been on the funny mushrooms again. You know, you know get over yourself. You know, how do we trust you? How do we believe in you? And then he goes on to say, so this voice in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the ghost. But this encounter, and I think this is the strength of the testimony, was so powerful and so believable from Paul's perspective that it changed him a complete 180. Going from persecuting the church to being one of the persecuted of the church. And that's why he says in verse 15, I asked, this is so real, this is so believable. I asked, who are you? Lord. So he didn't know who was talking, except for the fact that whoever this is, it is the Lord. Okay, this is someone of great authority. This is this is someone who uh, this, is, this is someone who's a representative of God. May it be a big angel, may it be a Messiah himself, whoever this is, this is uh, they got my attention. Who are you? And his answer is simply this I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. See, the irony is like he thought he was doing God's will by persecuting the Lord. But in fact, what he was doing was the very opposite. He was persecuting God. He's persecuting God's son. He's persecuting the Lord, Jesus. Next slide. So things change when we have, like Paul, these crazy encounters, these life-changing events in our lives. You can guarantee there's going to be a difference with a change. And the greater the change... There's going to be a difference. And then, of course, the greater the change, the greater the difference. And, and the change that happened to Paul went from a very proud man, a very you know, arrogant, astute student of the Judaistic ways of the branch of the Pharisees to being completely humbled. Humbled to a very base level, if you will. He goes on to say in verse 16, now get up and stand on your feet. This is him, of course, retelling the story, okay? So this is Jesus speaking to Paul in this testimony. Get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to point you as a servant and as a witness. Servant. The word servant is an odd word, actually. A very odd word. Huporeteis. A servant. Huporeteis. In and it actually, in the definition, contains another odd word, an under rower, which is not a very common word. In fact, I don't even think it appears in English dictionaries nowadays. I actually struggled to find a definition for under rower that wasn't in a, either an ancient or biblical specific dictionary. An under rower. It's a very specific. And when I first thought about an you know, a rower in general, like a subordinate rower. In my mind, I thought about like a c- competitive rower, right? You know, you're, you're rowing and maybe it's someone who assists. Like you have a, maybe a primary rower and you have a secondary rower who kind of backs them up. No, it's not that at all. It's, it's represented best by this picture right here. You know, a lot of people, that's a slave job right there. You know, and that's a, a group of people working together in harmony to move a vessel, 
And it's an unpleasant place to be. It's a scary place to be. It stinks. It's hot. It's sweaty. And you're likely to be, get really sick and possibly even die. So it's a really, it's not a pleasant thing. It's not a sporty thing. It's a very unpleasant thing. It's a, it's, it's a job reserved for, for slaves and slaves only. You see the guys on top, they weren't slaves. They had the, they were, they, they had the, the, the good view from up on top. But there's, in this picture, it's a cutaway because it's an illustration. But there's no windows. There's no ventilation. There's nowhere, nothing to look at. It's just, you're just looking at the back of another person and you're just doing your thing for countless hours. It's horrible. So Paul is being told by Jesus, I got a horrible thing for you. You ready? Ain't you excited, Paul? <laughs> You're my servant. You're my, an under rower for my kingdom. Isn't that great? You could be a clog in the machine. Now imagine how that must affect Paul. Work climbing the ladder. One moment. You know what I'm saying? Climbing the ladder. Being a very good student. Working his butt off. Getting straight A's for the Pharisee camp. Next thing you know, he encounters God. My life's changed. I get a Mercedes Benz. No, you get to be an under rower. You see, it's almost like counterintuitive to the way the world thinks today, isn't it? You know, you meet God and you get all kinds of wonderful things. And let me get you, let me get this straight. When you meet God, you get the ultimate wonderful thing. Okay, there's no doubt about it. But a part of it is being able to be an under rower for God and his kingdom, which is hard work. But let me tell you, it's good work. It's great work. It's nothing like that. And a witness. A witness. Martyrs. You guys know that word. Martyrs. It's, it's where you get the word martyr from. Okay? Martyr. Martyrs. A witness in a legal sense, a historical sense, a personal character. And I like the personal character part, especially when he's dealing with these governors, these kings, who have questionable character. Like, for instance, King Agrippa, who's hanging out with his sister friend. You know, is it a sister or is it a girlfriend? Who knows? A little bit of both. Okay, people of questionable moral character, right? But personal character is a big part of your witness. And look who he's talking to, you know? He's telling him, God's changing me. He's making me a under rower for his kingdom. And also he's making me a character witness, if you will. Those who, after his example, have proved the strength and genuineness of their faith in Christ by undergoing a violent death. Now, that's the classical definition of a martyr. Like we talk about the martyr, like historically, like the, if you read a book you know, or, or a publication, The Voice of Martyrs, it's a, it's a publication of people who died for Christ historically, okay? And if you haven't read that book, you should. It's really uh, <laughs> a disturbing book, but, <laughs> but it's, 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 it's surreal, very surreal. So a martyr, classically speaking, someone who dies because of their great strength and genuineness and faith, that's Paul. And, and Jesus said the same thing to Peter. Oh, Peter, it's okay. You will suffer for me in my kingdom. You will die for me. I'm sure Paul, Peter was like, well, come on, whatever happened to symbolism, you know? <laughs> yeah, symbolism only goes so far, but it's also reality. So Paul, not only is he an under rower, a very laborious, hard you know, sometimes stressful working situation, but in his mind, there's always this great deal of hope that gives him strength. And that hope is Christ, God's kingdom, you know, that what he does and what he's doing matters. It's significant. It's important. It's valuable. God's with him. God will give him the strength when he needs it. 
and, and things will come to completion in time. All the wonderful things he says in his epistles. He elaborates on it. So in verse 17, um, he goes on to say, uh, I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light. You see, people need to change. Both Jew and Gentile alike, people need to change. Today, guys, people still need to change. When I was talking about on the Thursday night men's meeting, I was walking around and just happened to be one of those days where I was like seeing hurt people everywhere I went, just broken souls. Sad people, damn people. And I'm like, man, these people need Jesus. How do I do it? How do I talk to them? How do I get, get through? You know, how, 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 I mean, you know, why are people not listening? What's going on, God? What's going on? But this is God. God wants to do something and he wants to be able to use us to get through to people, to open eyes, to turn people from darkness to light, from the power of Satan. And that's, that is what's going on. The power of Satan is very deceptive. It's when you think everything's okay. You know, I'm, I'm fine, I'm getting by, but you're not. You're in a bad place. And many people they think it's fine because the government pays their checks and they're, they've got NHS that's still kind of floating about, you know, and, you know, things are okay. I've got my insurance and I've got my telly and, you know, my football. So I'm cool. But you're not cool. Deep down inside, you know something's missing. You know something's wrong. And you're broken. You need Jesus. That's the power of Satan. And he said this, guys, Paul, he's an example to us, the church, of what we are meant to be doing with the help, the power of God, to, 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 to come alongside, to help broken people, to, to, to be there for them, to assist them spiritually, to bring them out of this place of darkness, opening eyes, deliverance from Satan, so they may receive forgiveness of sins. And a place, oh wow, a place to have, to be forgiven of your sin. The thing is, I, I sympathize with this because that was, this is me right here, guys. There was a point where I was in darkness, living in darkness, bound by the power of Satan. And then because of God's forgiveness, because of the power of the cross and the ability to be forgiven, now I'm forgiven. And there's a place for me. There's a place for you. And there's also a place for other people who don't even know it yet. Among those who are sanctified, set apart by faith. What an amazing con. You see, when you look at verse 18, it makes verse 16 a little bit easier of a pill to swallow, doesn't it? If you look at 18, you think, I get an opportunity to deliver people from darkness. I get the opportunity to deliver people from Satan's grip, to bring them to God and put, and put them in a place where they can hang out with God and sanctify people through faith. I get an opportunity to do that. That's really good. I want to do that. That's an awesome job. That's the best job. In fact, you don't have to pay me for this job. It's so good. It pays for itself. But that makes 16 a lot more tolerable. If I just told you guys to be a servant of God, what it's like, an under rower, to be a witness could lead to death. It's a very risky job. You might think, well, you can take your job and you can go to town with it, right? Right. I mean, that's honest truth. If you just said, well, this is the reality. This is, reality. This is the cost of, of being a servant of God. It's not pretty. But when you look at the reward, you get to take a person, a broken soul that's bound by darkness and Satan's grip, and you can take that person and bring him into eternity. Okay, sign me up. I'll be an underworld for God any day. I hope that's how we feel. I hope that's how we respond. Next slide, please. So in verse 20, uh, verse 19, so then King Agrippa was not disobedient. 
I'm sorry. So then King Agrippa, this is Paul speaking about his testimony. I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem, in all of Judea, and then to the Gentiles. I preached that they should repent and turn from God. This is what Paul did. He didn't, he wasn't a riot starter. He wasn't a ringleader, and he wasn't a defiler of the temple. He was a preacher. He preached that people should repent. Again, we talked about the whole conviction, repentance, and changing and turning to God to demonstrate their repentance by their deeds, a changed life. This is why some Jews have seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day. So I stand here and I testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses would say. And I like this. This goes back to the roots of, well, this is what makes the Reformation important and significant is that sometimes within churches, and it still happens today, even post-Reformation, we want to add more to the scriptures. We want to add personal opinions and theories and theologies and things that are could be good, but we need to keep the scripture separate and give it its primary place. It's, you know, you know what I'm saying? It, 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 what he says he's doing here, even though he's doing a lot of extra biblical things, if you will, like traveling about and talking to people, you know, he's keeping it scripture solid. And that's important. The problem, I believe, pre-Reformation is that there was an authority that came from scripture, but there was an authority that came from man. And the authority that came from man started to, you know what I'm saying, overshadow. So, the, so, so there was a campaign, if you will. There was a decision. We need to change things. Things are a bit screwy here. Let's change things. And the change was based primarily upon returning the authority of scriptures. But even in churches today, even, you know, reformed, on this side of reformed churches, there's still this temptation to, to give humanity authority it doesn't deserve to have. That's not right for it to have. Pastors, preachers, prophets, prophetesses, evangelists, they're all scriptural roles. They're all very scriptural roles, but the authority doesn't come from man. The authority comes from God, and the ultimate authority has been established through the word of God. It's safe. It's right. And this is what Paul's defense is here. I'm saying nothing beyond what the scripture says. It's all in agreement with the word. That the Messiah would suffer, and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. Are you out of your mind? Paul, he shouted, your great learning is driving you insane. And certainly, I'm sure Festus probably thought that this guy was just nuts. You know, you're thinking too much. You're, you're studying philosophy too much. You're studying your theology too much. You're, you're great learning. That, I don't know how, how that feels. Go crazy from reading too much. But the thing is, this is what, this is like, you're, 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 you're truly crazy. These things didn't happen to you. So he's rejecting them, basically. That's unbelievable. I don't believe what you're saying, Paul. And then Paul says, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. If you're going to call me insane, you have to have good reason. What's your evidence is for my insanity? Look at my argument and, 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 and tear it apart. Look at my argument and tell me where I'm wrong. And he says, Paul says, goes on to say, what I'm saying is true. And you know, it's also reasonable. And the king is familiar with these things. And I can speak freely to him because he said I could. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice. Because it was done not in a corner, it was out in the open, 
Okay, this is common knowledge for common people, including royalty. So King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? Basically, are you, do you believe the words? Do you believe the scriptures? Do you believe what the prophets say about the Messiah? And then he goes on to say, I kind of think you do. And so we get to a decision point for King Agrippa. You know what I'm saying. You get it, and you know it makes sense. What are you going to do about it, King Agrippa? What are you going to do about it? And we're going to finish in the next couple slides. And I call this the bottom line in two parts. In verse 28, then Agrippa says to Paul, Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to become a Christian? Paul replied, Short time or long, I pray to God that oh, not only you, but to all who are listening to me today, that um, listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. And that to me is the bottom line. This is this is this is this is so important, guys. This is so important. This is like the heart of this chapter. Bottom line is, is Paul's doing this for a very specific reason. He wants to see souls delivered. And you know what? It might take a little bit of time. You might be convinced quickly and easily. For King Agrippa, it seems like he's not convinced so quickly. So Paul's like, give yourself some time. But I hope ultimately you will be changed. And not just you, but everyone listening to this message today. I want you to be changed, to be what I am. Call a Christian, call a disciple, call a student of God. Call me insane if you want to. Call up the way, whatever. You need to be delivered. But I hope you don't have these chains because they're kind of heavy and they're encumbersome. You don't want the change. I want you to be free, free in Christ and free from chains. So that's bottom line part one. But then bottom line part two comes up after this. The king rose and with the governor and Bernice and those sitting with them, after they left the room, they began saying to one another. So they're talking to themselves. This man's not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. And you know what? They knew this from the get-go. They knew this from the get-go. What are we going to do? We can't bring a charge for Caesar because he's done nothing wrong. He shouldn't be imprisoned. And he certainly shouldn't be put on... You know, he shouldn't be considered for death because he's done nothing. He's innocent. But they have a nice little escape clause for themselves in verse 32. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So we'll see in the next chapter, Paul is going to start, he's going to get in a boat and he's going to travel to Rome to go before Caesar. But I want to finish with this last verse. Because I asked myself a question when I'm looking at this appealing to Caesar business. And I thought, was Paul, you know, was he, was he lacking in faith when he appealed to Caesar? Should he just hold onto his tongue and wait till King Agrippa came and just let him free? I don't know. But I do have this verse here that I want to share that might answer the question. Next slide. Was it right for Paul to have appealed to Caesar? Philippians 1 starting in verse 12, and we'll end with this verse, or verses. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. So what's Paul's heart? It's to advance the gospel. It's to usher souls into heaven. It's to bring forgiveness and redemption to people. So is it worth it? What's he talking about here? What's happened to him? Well, He's talking about his imprisonment and being sent to Rome as a prisoner. As a result, it has become clear 
throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident. So not only is he witnessing to palace guards and other people in the area and bringing them to Christ, but he's also an example to others who already believe in Christ, who need a good example, who need encouragement to become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. If Paul can do it, I can do it. Look at Paul. He's standing up against a lot more difficulties than I am. I mean, Paul's in prison. He might die. <coughs> but yet I'm kind of feeling insecure about talking to my neighbor. Gosh, that's ridiculous. I could talk to my neighbor. After all, I'm not going to die for talking to my neighbor about Jesus. So you see how it gives us confidence? Without fear. If Paul can do it, I can do it. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. Paul likes this. Oh, I'm so glad people are becoming brave because of me, become courageous because of me. I'll take these chains on. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. And yes, he takes it even to that degree. Life or death. For to me, and I highlighted this, because this is what we're seeing here with Paul. For me to live is Christ. And I think Paul believes what he preaches. Because we're seeing not just his words, but we're seeing him historically. A person who's following through. He literally believes what he preaches. And for him, it's rightfully said to live is Christ. Christ. 